We're in Ruth chapter 4. This morning we start Ruth chapter 4. If you're using the blue ESV Bible, you can find that on page 224. Ruth chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 1 through 12 this morning. The title of our sermon is Transaction. And our keywords for our worshipers and training are by, sandal, and witness. Now, marriage proposals and the ways in which we even arrive at proposing to a person in marriage has an interesting historical lineage. Now, some of the origins of our typical traditions of proposal in the West are unknown, but we have a few clues as to maybe how some of these things came about. For example, the beginnings of a man proposing by kneeling on one knee. There's a lot of speculation as to what that might have been. If you see engagement photos of noble, wealthy people throughout history, typically they're sitting or they're standing. Uh, Those arrangements were often some kind of business arrangement, so there was no kneeling at all, and subsequently also very few smiles in their pictures. One idea is that in the Middle Ages, a man of good birth, of noble birth, would essentially devote himself to a woman through poems and odes and deeds of honor Uh, because a noble woman was considered to be superior. So he was sort of a servant to the woman whom he idealized, and so he's performing this act of servitude by kneeling before her. But in general, throughout European history, kneeling itself was a sign of supplication. It was a sign of humility and servitude. Knights would, would kneel before their lord to receive honors and Surrendering armies kneeled before those who conquered them to show their defeat. Uh, kneeling to a woman that you're going to want to marry then may be a part of that same sort of thing. A request for her favor and a physical demonstration of loyalty and surrender to her as opposed to anyone else. It, it seems to have first shown up in the 19th century, but nobody really knows exactly everything that goes behind kneeling to propose. Well, what about the ring that one is given? The first reliable records show that women wore engagement rings during the days of the Roman Empire when betrothed women were given golden rings to wear out in public and iron rings to wear at home. There are records that show during the 17th century there were Spanish laws that declared that betrothal rings could not be revoked once they were given. And so once you received the ring, marriage was mandatory at that point. Pope Nicholas I in 860 attempted to make an expensive gold engagement ring legally necessary so that men would make significant monetary sacrifices so that they would take marriage more seriously. The first recorded engagement ring with diamonds dates back to 1477, but it didn't involve a solitaire diamond. The ring in question was a gift from the Archduke Maximilian of Austria to the noblewoman that he was courting. It was a 20-year-old girl by the name of Mary of Burgundy. Now, Mary of Burgundy was a very beautiful, a very powerful woman. She was highly sought after by many men. And so, this, in this case, the diamond ring was a, a show of uh, trying to impress her. He's trying to do something different for her, and so he gave her the ring. But very likely, she was interested in him anyway. 
Now, after Mary of Burgundy, the real beginning of the diamond engagement ring tradition only emerged in the late 1800s when a mining company struck rich on diamonds in Africa and they formed a jewelry department to deal with it. And this gets to where all of us are probably very familiar with. The company really gained prominence in the 1930s and the 1940s when it employed a hugely successful ad campaign where they said, diamonds are forever. It is, to this day, considered the most successful advertising idea of all time, much to the delight of every woman who has one on her finger. Diamond engagement rings are, in most Western countries now, seen to be the only acceptable option when a man declares his intention to marry a woman. Well, what about men proposing and not women? Again, remember that a lot of aristocratic marriages in Europe throughout the ages were all about Um, They were about alliances, so one nation supporting the other, and so they would seal that by having their children marry one another. Or they were business arrangements uh, when a business plan was made. So the idea of a proposal was often based on, uh, on those arrangements. And so when it came to a time when a man was ready to propose to a woman, it was financially based. It was when he was ready to support himself and a family. Plus, courtship was one of the rare societal arenas in which women literally, and this is where the word courtship comes from, where where women would literally hold court. And so the men would come and become courtiers, where they would come and present their case as to why the women should select them to be their husbands. And so uh, this was the only time, uh, at least in the past, when women had any kind of uh, influence in terms of their relationships. And so... There's all kinds of stories as to why maybe these things came about the way that they did. But the way that we understand all these traditions is really very Western. When you look around the world, you find that the Western way of engagement is actually quite different from other places. For example, in Japan, a couple isn't really engaged until there's something called a unio. That's an engagement ceremony. And that involves the two families of each person meeting together Uh, And they exchange nine symbolic gifts to one another, and those gifts are wrapped in rice paper. And each gift is meant to symbolize a particular sentiment and well wishes for the couple, such as longevity and wealth and prosperity and health of their children. And families both have to approve of the marriage before it's allowed to go forward. In Chile... Engagement rings aren't just for the girls. Both the bride and the groom wear engagement rings on their right hand, and the day that they get married, they swap them over to their left hand. In India, if a a marriage isn't arranged, which it often is, Indian couples traditionally become engaged after the bride's family has formally accepted the groom's family's proposal. So the whole family is proposing, and that's followed by this elaborate engagement party that they have just as big as the wedding party. In Ghana, Africa, a groom and his family in one of the tribes and his family members, they go and they knock on the bride family's door and announce his intentions to be married. And this, this knocking ceremony happens a few weeks before they want to have the actual wedding. And so in good African fashion, everything happens at the last minute. In Thai culture... Men ask for their future wives' hand in, in marriage during a ceremony uh, that, that is uh, called gold engagement. Instead of a diamond ring, the prospective groom presents his fiancée with various gifts, and all of them are made of gold. Glad I don't live there. 
In Greek culture, the man must ask the father of the bride for permission to marry, and then the couple must attend a mandatory counseling sessions with the priest where they'll receive their marriage counseling. And once all the blessings are done, there's this huge engagement party with all the family and friends, and again, just as big as the wedding party. And there are so many other traditions. We could go through all of the nations of the world and find all kinds of very different traditions, and yet so often we simply assume that it's just the same as what we see here in the West. So there are all these different reasons when it comes to engagement why things are done the way that they are. And that even includes why things are done the way they are in marriage ceremonies. But None of these is quite as strange that I've mentioned to the Western mind, the Western person, probably as what we see occurring in our text this morning. Quite literally, what we'll see in our text this morning involves the sandal off of one man's foot given to another man. Not quite gold and diamonds and gifts. You'll recall that we saw last time at the end of chapter 3, Naomi told Ruth, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest but will settle this matter today. She was certain that Boaz was going to settle this, this matter of making sure that her and Ruth were taken care of by the kinsman redeemer. Now, there's some clues in the text this morning that are going to show us that maybe Naomi had something going on behind the scenes to help this along. But that's not necessarily the case. It's only a suggestion. Nevertheless, whether, whether the, whatever the truth of the matter is with regard to Naomi's input, we're going to see this movement in our Cinderella story between Boaz and Ruth as Boaz follows through with what he promised to do at the end of chapter 3. We're going to see a marriage engagement, and subsequently we're going to see that the marriage then is sealed. Now, by way of reminder, you'll recall last week that we saw Ruth follow through with the counsel given to her by her mother-in-law, Naomi, when she went to the threshing floor. And remember, Boaz was there, and he had threshed out the grain all day, and at night he had a large feast, and then he had, he had drank much wine, and he went and laid down uh, to sleep. And then in the middle of the night, Ruth readied herself. She dressed nicely, and she put on ointment or perfume, and she went in the middle of the night and laid at his feet and put herself under his cloak. And then Boaz eventually woke up to find Ruth sleeping at his feet, and she very quickly announced her intentions to him, that she wanted him to redeem her. In other words, she wanted him to to marry her, that she would be redeemed, and that she would have protection and provision in Bethlehem, which is this, this strange new land that she's living in. Now, you remember that Boaz very graciously agreed to do this, but there was one issue you recall that the issue was that there was a man in the family who was closer to Naomi than Boaz, and he had the first right in terms of becoming the kinsman redeemer. And so he needed to go and talk to this man to assure that everything was going to work out. Either way, we saw the character of Boaz. We saw the character of a man who wanted to ensure that Naomi and Ruth were being cared for by a redeemer. And so he sent Ruth home before others were awake, and as he sent her home, he gave her 80 pounds of barley to carry home for her and Naomi. 
Ruth got home, her and Naomi discussed everything that had gone on, and Naomi counseled Ruth to wait and see what would happen, trusting that Boaz was going to follow through with his promise. And so that ended chapter 3, what we saw last week. So this morning, as we get into chapter 4, we're going to see how all of this plays out. And as I've hinted at already, we see an engagement take place. But first, we're going to see in verses 1 through 6 that the greatest payoffs come with sacrifice. Let's look at verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know. For there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, I mentioned this may be a case of Naomi working a little bit behind the scenes to make sure that her her and Ruth were going to be taken care of. And we see that right here in the beginning. Notice Boaz asks the man who was closer in relation to Naomi than Boaz... Uh, that he was, he's meeting up with him at the gate. And the gate is where, this is where all of the city business takes place. And notice, too, that they sat down. It tells us in verse 2 that Boaz gathered uh, 12, uh, or excuse me, 10 men of the elders of the city, and he tells them to sit down here. And so, in essence, we're holding court here at the city gates. This is where the official business took place. And, and very quickly, we, I want you to notice something, that the writer of the book of Ruth goes really goes out of his way to not mention the name of this man who is the Redeemer. A literal rendering in our modern vernacular would be like calling him something like Mr. So-and-so. Notice in verse 1, he, he call, he's called the Redeemer, and then uh, Boaz calls him friend, and then in verse 3 and verse 6 again, he calls him again the Redeemer. There's something going on here, so hold on to that thought, and we'll come back to that in a moment. But notice in verse 3, we see an indication that maybe Naomi has involved herself. It says, Boaz says, Naomi is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. Now, it's possible that, that Boaz is either assuming Naomi would be willing to do this if the outcome is that Ruth has a husband and she's taken care of, or, she's just, or, or Boaz is just presuming that that's something that Naomi would want to do, uh, kind of a do whatever is necessary to make sure that this deal gets done. Or it's even possible that Boaz is bluffing here because he has an angle to play. 
So any of these things are likely. I tend to believe that Boaz had probably already talked to Naomi and she was really offering the land to be sold because of the benefit of doing so, which we will get into. So assuming this is the case, Naomi is taking a risk here. She's including Elimelech's land, her dead husband's land, as a part of the cost for the Redeemer to redeem. And here's the catch that everyone would have known. If you buy the land, you are also taking on the responsibility to care for Naomi, and by extension, Ruth. So this is a package deal. However, it's really interesting to note how Boaz presents all of this to Mr. So-and-so. This is a package deal, but he's presenting it in a way that the man is likely thinking, okay, so if I redeem this, I get this nice parcel of land, and all I have to do is commit a small portion of what I have to take care of this old lady until she dies. She couldn't have any more children, so there wouldn't be anyone to share the inheritance with. Uh, So it's a very small risk. I can take care of this elderly woman. Uh, That's no problem. In exchange, I get the land and I get everything that comes with it. So he thinks, sure, no problem. And what does he say? Right there at the end of verse 4, right away, he jumps on in and he says, yes, I'll take it. I'll do it. Sold. I'm in. Now, I think it's reasonable for us to assume That if Boaz didn't have an angle he was trying to play, that he would have led the conversation with a mention of Ruth. That's been the whole focus of our story. And we've learned that it's quite unlikely that she wasn't known. Everybody knew who she was. She looked different. All indications are that she acted different because she was such a hard worker for her and Naomi. But Boaz was crafty. Boaz was being shrewd because... I think we can safely conclude he wanted to make sure that all of this turned out in a certain way. So Boaz lays out the circumstances and he's telling the man he has what what are called for, um, it's called the first right of Leverite refusal. And so as uh, in Levitical law, uh, you have the, the closest redeemer, you have the right to refuse to do that at first. He had the opportunity to turn down the offer. Now, at first, again, remember, he thinks he's stumbled onto one of the greatest deals he's ever been presented. He could puff out his chest a little bit because he had just gotten more land at a reasonable price. He could look good for taking on the responsibility as a redeemer for this old woman. And so it's a win-win situation for him as far as he's concerned. Ah, But Boaz has this guy eating right out of his hand all along. The man was about to have to swallow his words and back away. Notice how Boaz is pressing him for a decision in verse 4. He says, he's, he's telling him, listen man, this is going down. This needs to happen and you're the first guy in line. So if you're going to do it, go ahead and do it. Let's get this going. We need a decision here. But if you're not going to do it, let me know and I'll take care of it. And so he sort of makes it an issue of pride. You're gonna, if you don't do it, I will. This needs to happen. And everyone's sitting around. Everyone's listening to this. The elders of the city, the people that were hanging out at the gate, they all get a sense of what's going on. So when Boaz gets the answer, 
we don't get any indication that he's surprised. This is what he expected. It was all part of his plan. He knew what the man would answer, and he knew the man himself. So he used his insight. He used his shrewd way of getting a better result here. And after the man took a flying leap off the bridge without a harness to say yes, Boaz comes back and he says, Oh, by the way, by the way, I wanted to let you know, I know you've said yes, but just wanted to make clear that you know. This also includes Ruth, that Moabite woman. You have to take Ruth also. And you can just imagine the guy sort of pausing dead in his tracks and thinking, um, I didn't know about that. Now remember, Ruth isn't just any old woman in Israel. She's a Moabite But not only is she a Moabite, she's young, she's still of childbearing age, and she would likely, living throughout her life, she would begin to drain this guy's resources. If she would have had any children, according to the statutes of a Levitical marriage, they would have been legally entitled to her deceased husband's inheritance. And so even after she died, even though they weren't her, old, her dead husband's kids, they still would have gotten all that was his. And all that was his would have been his father's. And therefore, the land that the Redeemer redeemed wouldn't have been his. It would have belonged to the children of Ruth. And so, all of a sudden, it wasn't such a great deal. But this is all that Boaz is referring to at the end of verse 5. He says, "...in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance." And so Boaz says all of this, and he says, he's kind of saying, what do you have to say for yourself now, Mr. So-and-so? All of this land would eventually revert to this child if she had a child. And so what do you want to do now? This isn't the sweet deal that you thought it was going to be. And so we see that that old saying is really very much a reality. If it sounds and looks too good to be true, it probably is. And so in the end, Mr. So-and-so is just essentially saying in verse 6, I can't afford that. That's too much. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to buy a piece of land, take on the responsibility for this old woman and for this young lady, because in the end, all of the land will probably not be mine anyway. It's not worth it to me. He had a very quick change of heart. Finances have a way of doing that sometimes. So Boaz had this plan all drawn up to happen the way that it happened, and it worked. Now, I would say, though, that Boaz had nerves of steel. The man could have very easily taken all of it, and Boaz would have remained ruthless. Ah, you got it. I've been waiting. I've been waiting (laughs) since chapter 1 to use that joke, and I finally had an opportunity. But Boaz knew, Boaz knew that this was going to work. It was worth the risk, right? That's the thing that we often forget in this life. We've seen it, for a few, we've seen it a few different times now as we've worked through the book of Luke. That the greatest things that we're able to accomplish in this life, they take some nerve. They take some risk. They take us trusting that the Lord will work things out in such a way that He is going to get the glory and the best possible thing will end up for us, even if we don't see it here and now. Boaz is working out this plan, but behind the scenes the Lord is working to the great end for the good of His children so that even though, 
Even though in the midst of it all, we may be confused, we may have some knots in our stomach, how it's all going down, we can trust the Lord. We can trust that whatever the outcome is, the Lord is going to work it out for our good. And I wonder, do we go about life like that? Do we live our lives with that kind of trust in the Lord? Do you have that kind of sure confidence in the sovereignty of God? Listen, there are times in in my own life when things happen and I just start to think through all of the ways it could have been prevented and all the things I need to do now that my plans got all messed up and I start blaming people and I look for other ways to go about this, to accomplish it. It takes me some time and eventually I have to stop and say, wait a second, the Lord has a plan here that it's obviously very different than mine. Do I trust him? Do we trust the Lord enough to say, you know what? I'm going to do this thing in the way that I hope it will turn out with a certain outcome. But if it doesn't, if it doesn't, it's okay. It's okay because God does love me. And God has promised to me that he's never going to leave me. He's never going to forsake me. He's going to work it out for my good and for his glory. I think that's exactly how Boaz was thinking as he approached Mr. So-and-so. And and here's the thing. Here's why I made a point to mention how little attention is paid to the other guy. Because now, throughout all of history, what do we know about him? We know that he's that guy. You know the saying, don't be that guy? It's him. Don't be Mr. So-and-so. Right? The Redeemer. The legacy that he left behind wasn't one of confidence and faith in the Lord to do what he Uh, is obligated to do by tradition, in, in Jewish tradition, his legacy is one of fear. His legacy is one of self-preservation. His one is a legacy of hastiness and, and then backing away. You see, Boaz knew that there was risk involved in all of this. He knew that the potential for loss was great, but the greater payoff was taking the risk. How he approached the man and the risk in taking on the responsibility, was all his. But the prince was ready to redeem his Cinderella, and so it was all working out, but it was at a great risk. Let's see how it goes. Our second point this morning in verses 7 through 10 is that the true prince will go to great lengths to get his bride. Look at verse 7. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction... The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witness this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belongs to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon. Also, Ruth the Moabite The widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witness to this day. Now, if this were the kind of transaction that even took place today on any level, we would have had a handshake among the guys. Someone would have written up a contract for everyone to sign. And Boaz would have gone. He would have found Ruth. He would have gotten down on one knee. He would have taken out the little velvet box and opened it up and asked her to marry him. And all of his friends would be hiding off in the bushes taking 
pictures for Instagram. But strange, among all of the strangest ways of securing a wife, Mr. So-and-so says, no, I don't want her. And he takes off his sandal and he gives it to Boaz. And Boaz immediately turns to everyone and says, well, guys, you see how it's all gone down. I have his sandal to prove it. It is done. I get the land, I get Naomi, I get everything that was Elimelech's, I get everything that was Chilion's and Malon's, it's all mine. And by the way, boys, lest you be mistaken, that Moabite girl, Ruth, she's mine now too. All that other stuff, it was okay. But this woman, she is my wife, and she will continue to perpetuate the name of the dead so that he will not be forgotten. And there it was, a done deal. Who knew a sandal could be so powerful? And Boaz was so opposite of Mr. So-and-so, he doesn't jump into this haphazardly. He actually reminds them two different times as he's talking to them, you are witnesses to this whole thing. Don't forget it. He's serious, and the outcome is what he both anticipated and hoped for. Now, as this ceremony takes place, I actually... I love that the writer anticipates that someone's going to be reading this and wonder, what in the world does a sandal have to do with any of it? And he tells us right there in verse 7, he's kind of like, by the way, this is how they used to do things. Uh, So the indication is that probably this was written well after this tradition itself had passed away. And so we needed some explanation. Even the earliest readers maybe wouldn't have known exactly what was going on here. But notice how he goes after Ruth. Notice how emphatic he is in saying, this girl, this Moabite, she's my wife. Don't you know how this name, this this heritage, this lineage of being a Moabite hung around her neck like a noose? Don't you know this was likely one of the things that kept any other guy from wanting to have anything to do with Ruth? because she was a Moabite? Don't you know that it was a big deal that this Moabite woman was in Bethlehem and now a wealthy, well-respected man wasn't only marrying her, but making very clear to everyone at the gate of the city, this woman who is a Moabite, this woman that is so despised because of where she comes from, this woman who most of you who would have nothing to do with her, this woman is my bride. She is my wife and I am proud to let you know it. Isn't this so much like Jesus? Isn't this so much like our Lord? The prince spares no expense to come after his bride, and there's nothing about her that he's embarrassed about. There's nothing about her that that he's afraid to talk about. She's mine, and I don't care what you think about her. I don't care what you have to say about her. Our great Lord, when he said, he said, come to me. He wasn't talking to the noble and the rich and the well-respected and the leaders of the day. He was talking to the lowly. He was talking to the weak. He was talking to the wounded and the diseased and the sick and the ones that nobody wanted anyone, anything to do with. But he was also talking to the rich and the powerful. Anyone, anyone who was willing to come to him in humility and faith and trust to come to him knowing that when I come, I am his. And he spares no expense to make me his. 
and to make known before the world, and not just to make known before the world, but to make known before the Father that we are His. Are you united to Christ? Christ's greatest concern is not who you are right now or what you have done in the past. His greatest concern is that by faith you come to Him and that all of your faith and all of your hope and all of your trust and all of your rest would be in Him. And in doing so, by faith, you repent of your sins and and you turn away from a life of living for yourself and instead you're living upon Him. You're living upon His righteousness. Friend, if you do not know Christ as your King as your Savior, as your Lord, as your Redeemer. Will you turn to Him by faith today? He says, come to me. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Do you see what Boaz is doing here? In what he's doing, we get a great picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord assumed our nature for the purpose of redemption. He came from everlasting as the great covenant head of His people. And in seeing our broken nature, and seeing every one of the offspring of Adam totally unable to redeem ourselves, much less to save anyone else, Jesus was moved with compassion, and He resolved that He would do all that it took to redeem us. To redeem you. And in the end, The blood of bulls and goats and rams wasn't good enough for our redemption. It wasn't wasn't the animals that were slaughtered. It wasn't the earnestness of the hearts of men. It wasn't the works that they were proud of and self-righteous in. It was Jesus alone who went outside of the gate and died on a bloody cross. That in doing so, he would say, this is my bride. And while she may not be much to you, while you may despise her and cast her away and want nothing to do with her, she is my bride and I will die for her. I will take her place that she might live forever and ever and ever. That's what Jesus says about us. That's what he says about his church. Only Jesus was competent to be the great kinsman redeemer. Only Jesus can do what he did to take on this great role. Not only to one day redeem all of creation. But when you redeem the creation, you redeem the bride as well. She comes with everything. The true prince went to the greatest lengths imaginable to redeem his bride. And he did so on his own accord, as the Bible tells us, for the joy that was set before him. Our Lord is worthy of all of our praise, isn't he? Well, finally this morning we see in verses 11 and 12 that the faithful are those who are remembered and blessed in the end. Look at verse 11. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Now all of the legal maneuvering, all this has ended. Court is concluded. And the only scene we now have is rejoicing. 
The proposal has taken place, and as far as the the court is concerned, Ruth is now Boaz's wife. The land and Naomi, let's be honest, that's important, but it's secondary to Boaz. Everyone knows what's really going on here, and so they focus on what's really going on here. The witnesses and the elders and all the curious onlookers, they all join in pronouncing this extraordinary extraordinary prayerful blessing upon Ruth and Boaz and their anticipated descendants. And really, they didn't know exactly how significant all of this would end up being. And we're going to see next week just how significant it was. But notice in the blessing here, they mentioned Rachel and Leah. And these were the esteemed mothers of the founders of the 12 tribes of Israel. And, and there's a comparison here with the previously childless Ruth. And that seems amazing. Remember, Ruth was married to her husband for 10 years. And she never had a child. So in that day, it was undoubtable that she was considered to be barren. You don't marry someone for 10 years without having a child, without everyone assuming that you're going to be childless. You're barren. And yet, the Lord could finally act still in Ruth's life. And everyone noticed that, as he did in Rachel's. And that's why they make the comparison, by opening her womb, that a blessing would come forth. And then we see here, Notice, it's not Mr. So-and-so that's remembered and blessed. No, it's, it's Boaz who rightly deserved fame and fortune in Bethlehem. He's blessed with a comparison to Perez. The Perizzites were, were the ascendant tribe of, of Judah, and it was through this tribe that Ruth's projected child would come to be among the elite of Israel. And here's what Mr. So-and-so didn't really think about. This is a great deal for Boaz, even if he didn't like Ruth, which he clearly did. But by becoming a husband and a father, he is now also a local and national hero. Remember back at the beginning of the story, back in chapter 1, when Ruth committed herself to Naomi and Naomi's God, and there was this great uncertainty about what would happen when she got to Bethlehem, this great unknown of what would come in the future. Well, look at everything now. Look how different things are. You see, when Boaz committed himself to a new wife, her personal security and the security and provision of Naomi was no longer in question. Naomi's no longer empty like she once thought. She is full of more than she could have ever imagined. The only thing remaining to be figured out was the future of the family. Who else would come into the family? Who would this child be if there was to be one? And the Lord will answer that in a big way as we finish up the book of Luke Uh, excuse me, the book of Ruth, next Lord's Day. This happy drama, this great Cinderella story will be resolved yet still with one of the most happily ever after endings that you will ever see.